Welcome back to Liminal Frames. I'm Nathan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Darren, Exo Academian. Darren, how are you? How was your week? What's going on? I'm doing well, thank you. I had a, a pretty intense week. Um, you know, just a lot of uh, communication downloads um, and uh, trying to incorporate that into my understanding of the phenomenon and reality and all of that. No small task. Um, so yeah, that's just sort of my honest answer to what my week's been like, uh, but it was powerful and um, moving forward, trying to make sense of it. Just an average Saturday is what it sounds like to me. Uh, <laughs> that's great. Well, it's uh, it's definitely been an interesting week and the energy has been uh, in some ways at least for me, kind of muted, but in other ways, because I, you know, know folks like you are going through a lot of uh, sort of intense re research and discovery. You know, I'm I'm kind of getting a little bit of that through osmosis, uh, which is exciting. And you know, with with some things that are coming up on the horizon, I think that the uh, the focus, at least in in our circle, seems to be shifting a little bit uh, from some of the traditional ways that we've engaged on this topic through social media to uh, kind of more inter interpersonal ways and uh, even more academic uh, ways of looking at this topic uh, and where it might be going. And um, I don't know if you've kind of felt that same sense. Yeah, no, that's, that's true actually. And it's interesting that both those um, gears are kind of kicking in. So you've got definitely the more interpersonal people meeting in person and, uh, either doing like virtual groups together. Like we did one of those over the summer with a couple of people, um, <clears throat> which is really great. But then on top of that, you've got, you know, different events where people actually are gathering in person, uh, which, you know, it's just so much more rewarding because you're really having that sort of 3d interaction with another human being and seeing the fullness of even how this phenomenon has impacted people and who they are and, and the fullness of, of their personhood. Um, but then on top of that, yeah, you have, um, as, as things begin to crack in the mainstream a little bit at a time, you're getting more and more people who are coming from academic circles or more of the left brain critical thinking style, uh, people who are saying there seems to be some data here that's worth looking into uh, without jumping to conclusions about what it means or what they are. Uh, so that seems to be happening as well. And it's an interesting, uh, interesting situation that both those gears are kicking in at the same time. For sure. It there's the sense in which this uh, mystery has become more real and the uh, attention and the awareness that is now directing in that, to that mystery, trying to understand what it is, uh, is really creating a lot of positive energy, a lot of excitement from folks that, you know, quite frankly, may have felt fairly stale in their own academic journey uh, or, or their own personal journey, that this is something that really does you know, kind of animate us when we, when we turn our attention to it, if we, if we take it seriously. And that's something that I think we're going to touch on uh, in this episode today and looking at the in a kind of very macro way, the history of humanity's interaction with this grand mystery, uh, with non-human intelligence, both the kind of non-human intelligence that's here on the earth uh, and then elsewhere and everywhere in between, and how that has kind of uh, directed our experience, our experience of ourselves as the individual and our experience 
with one another as a, as a collective and in societies. And so we're going to explore the contours of that. And I, and I hope through that exploration, just kind of get a, a little bit of a sense of where we might be going and help sometimes to look back to really figure out where you are and then where you might be headed. So with that being said, why don't we start with kind of looking back? Uh, we're going to look back at some of the, the old human history, maybe that even predates uh, the the history that um, that we're most familiar with the rise of you know civilizations and you know what are some ways that y- when you think about that period uh, I guess the prehistoric time uh, of humanity what are some ways you think about human beings and human culture and how they were relating with other intelligences other non-human intelligences and and for me I can start with a very fundamental, analysis that doesn't even involve anything uh, phenomenological or, uh, you know, aliens or UFOlogical or anything, but just the very mere fact of human beings being present in a rich tapestry of life, uh, a lot of which was trying to kill you (laughs) at any given moment, and certainly wasn't dumb. Uh, There were plenty of very intelligent creatures, um, and uh, I'll remind folks, including other human species, uh, that we were sharing the planet with. And the very presence of those intelligences impacts and changes the way in which we behave, the way we order ourselves, the way we uh, plan for the future. Um, there is this friction, this kind of uh, healthy friction that is uh, created in the interplay between those different types of beings. But I don't know if you, you, how do you think about that, that kind of prehistoric time and and, and how those influences may have shaped us and who we are? Yeah, it's interesting because I think there's definitely been a trade-off and uh, I often find people either kind of have a highly romantic view of the way things were back then when you were living so close to nature and other people on the other side of the spectrum see it as like, you know, horrific and barbaric and primitive and, uh, you know, short lifespans and disease and difficulty just knowing where your next meal is coming from, all that's true as well. I think both of those are true. Um, Before we went on the air, we were talking about how, um, you know, technological development does not equal uh, your quality of life. And there are some people that are living in mud huts in tribal zones that have a better quality of life because they have more of a raw, authentic fully alive experience of, of being a human being than someone who's caught up in like a corporate rat race and lives in a nice house and drives a nice car, but doesn't really, they're not in love with life. Right. <clears throat> That's I think one of the, the, the trade-offs that our culture is trying to, to reckon with and it's creating all sorts of shadow in our culture because people are, are not feeling that vital aliveness. Uh, but another thing I think about when I think about, you know, prehistory and really primitive man is that um, kind of just like how a child hasn't fully separated themselves from the world they're in, right? They don't, they don't fully recognize that they're a separate being. So they, they cover their eyes and they think the world just shuts down, right? Um, goes black entirely. Uh, in the same way, primitive man kind of was that way, right? Like they, they had, you know, an understanding of um, kind of being part and parcel with nature and not really segmented and separate from and that created some problems, but it also created, I think, kind of a, a magical connection that inevitably allowed them to probably even have some psi capacities that we don't have. You know, I, I know that I've mentioned 
when I was talking with Joe McMonagall a few months ago, he mentioned how he believes, you know, side capacities uh, around, for instance, you know, knowing what's going to happen in various ways is tied to like survival skills that when you're living in an environment where there could be a lion behind that tree, you need that sixth sense, right? Which uh, people like him will actually call the first sense because in primitive man, that may have been there initially. And then if we, as we've developed civilization around us in a safety net, one of the trade-offs may have been that we've lost some of that psi capacity because we don't need it. And so we don't develop it as young children. And that's one of the trade-offs. So I definitely think um, the depiction of what life was like then as opposed to now is often more one-dimensional than it actually was. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that uh, all of the things that we've surrounded ourselves with now really have in fact dulled our, our senses uh, that we've not just, we've not needed to rely on those things any longer. Uh, so that kind of deep connectivity uh, to the world, maybe that lack of separateness uh, between the human individual and the world they find themselves in um, has its own sort of power, particularly in how they uh, construct their model of the world, right? So we have, uh, and we don't we think about this very often, perhaps, but our models of the world include things like houses and offices and cars and, you know, structures in which we are, uh, we, we've created them. Uh, we, they're very, you know, geometric. Uh, they're not very organic. Uh, and we feel quite safe in those structures usually. Um, and to imagine a world that doesn't have those kinds of things, at least predominantly where we navigate with our feet on the ground, our connection to, to the earth. And, you know, we're listening to the sounds and, and knowing where's, where is danger and where is our next meal going to be coming from? You know, that's a totally different landscape and a different model that exists than, than what we are familiar with. So it would be completely foreign to, to you and I, if we were to kind of try to imagine what that would be like uh, for those early humans. Yeah. And I think, uh, but again, for all those, those modern marvels, I think, you know, <clears throat> there's a reason why people are drawn to the idea of going living in a, on a, you know, a farm, where they're supposed to live like it's, you know, the 18th century and they surrender their phone when they get to the front door and, you know, they, they work for six hours a day on the land and then don't have TV or internet or anything to, uh, to distract them. Right. And I think some people are overwhelmed by that notion because we've, we've kind of, you know, numbed ourselves with constant streaming entertainment, right. It's constant distraction. Um, and, we've so divorced ourselves from that feeling of vital aliveness, uh, both deeply in touch with who we are at our deepest level, but also what's available to us in the consciousness all around us in the natural world. As we've lost more and more touch with that, we've filled the gap with um, distraction, right? And, um, you know, it's, it's it wasn't that long ago that you had to wait till a Tuesday night to watch your favorite show, right? Now you can just like, you know, stream seven episodes or seven seasons of episodes, right? Mm. Uh, in two weeks. And then you just go to find the next thing, the next fix, right? On the one hand, that makes us feel fulfilled. But I think one of the things we really need to do is develop the discernment to know, am I really feeling fulfilled or am I feeling distracted or entertained in the same way that, you know, the lions and the Coliseum uh, was entertainment to people, even though it was kind of horrific. Like 
to, to really know that difference, to really um, not be so completely of this world, right, that we have lost touch with what it might look like if it was different. And what have we lost, perhaps, in the midst of the many things that we've gained? That's right. I mean, we've, in many ways, created approximations of those things. We've created a, approximations of danger that aren't dangerous, but they may, in fact, make us feel a sense of danger. Uh, and there are many conversations happening now, I think, where we look at uh, the level of anxiety in human beings, and it's, in many we, we've created too many approximations of danger that there's, you know, these sort of false stressors that, that are everywhere that we can't escape them. Um, and the same thing with food, right? We've created approximations of food that's nutritious. You know, we've, we've manufactured this uh, kind of food to, to feed us, and it, it often ends up being quite empty uh, from of nutritional value. But the, how did the, you know, as the human beings kind of began to, to, to sort of organize them themselves or, you know, we would call it progress, and, you know, we, we can debate whether that, that's really true or not. What were in your mind, some of the ways that, that what were some of the drivers to, for, for that progression? Like what, why, why did we get from there to here? You know, why, why not just forever remain in a kind of state of prehistory? You know, was it something that in your view, uh, there was an impetus for that change that, you know, kind of came from outside the system? Uh, was it, uh, you know, kind of an accidental discovery that just really, uh, caused us to change our behavior and, and kind of our entire you know social structure. You know, how, what where, where do those kind of forces come from? How do you think of that? Well, I think I think of it at least twofold in the sense that, as I mentioned before in this podcast, one thing I notice when you look back at human history <clears throat> is how often we pendulum swing. So we, in trying to overcome a certain deficit in one area, we tend to. Uh, swing, overswing, overcorrect, right? Uh, like when you're driving and you hit a snowy patch and you slide a bit, you suddenly, you know, swing the wheel too much and you end up fishtailing because you've overcorrected. I think we do that time and time again. And a lot of the, what we're seeing in the modern era is um, with scientism is a reaction to the excesses of the, you know, Christendom, right? When the church kind of ruled the land there was definitely some negatives that came with that when it was at the height of its power and kind of like high on its power and became corrupted. Absolutely. As often happens with any kind of institution at that level of success and power, but we now have swung the other way. But when I think back to all of the iterations of human history, I, I think that's happened, you know, like it, it made sense to go from hunter gatherers to <clears throat> suddenly saying, Wait a second, if we just stop here where we have this water source and there's plenty of game nearby and we we you know have people do different tasks rather than everyone doing the same task, we can actually band together and and make life uh, you know more prosperous and we can grow enough food that we do know where our food's coming from tomorrow. It's not this mystery. Um, and so you trade off a little bit of that sense of um, aliveness every day. But at the same time, you have that that safety now that comes, the safety net of being with others and knowing where your food's going to come from, at least until, you know, you think a god wipes it out uh, because of a hurricane or something. Um, but I think an interesting piece, in addition to our pendulum swinging based on what we value versus what we fear, um, there's also the question of related to what we often talk, talk, 
about here is on this podcast is to what degree did various non-human intelligences impact human history and make us go one direction rather than another. Um, I think that's littered throughout human history. And I think that's sort of the untold uh, story. You know, when you look at how we read history now, um, we look back and we read about, you know, primitive people who were freaked out about whether it was going to thunder and lightning tomorrow. And so they made up ideas about gods that control those powers so they could feel a greater sense of agency because they could uh, lobby those gods, just like we might lobby Congress um, to change the outcome. Uh, but I think that's a really uh, narrow, inaccurate, um, and skewed view based on our current way we value uh, one thing over another, and that there actually were real interactions with non-human intelligences. And again, to some degree, I think when you had that closer relationship with nature, with it's like the 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 vital energies of of the underlying structure of reality. I think they actually we're actually perceiving things, interacting with things differently than we do now, things that we've lost. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a group of extraterrestrials flying here on spaceships, landing and saying, let's, let's show you how you do accounting and, uh, you know, mathematics and how you build an aqueduct. You know, it, it can be something like in that ability to introspect, but also channel these different intelligences by going within rather than going without or rather than those other things coming here. I think some of those early civilizations, you look like at ancient Sumeria and whatnot, it may be more of been a channeling with some sort of higher intelligence, which may have been extraterrestrial or may have been more interdimensional. doesn't really matter. I think to some degree, those are misnomers when we separate those, but there seems to be evidence where uh, certain civilizations took a leap forward that you begs the question, where did that influence come from that made them suddenly be a thousand years ahead of everybody else, all the other, you know, people groups around the planet. And uh, I think there's definitely evidence pointing in that direction that there is actually interaction with these other intelligences, which of course then opens up a Pandora's box of questions around where did humanity ultimately originally come from how many times have we been tweaked or enhanced or encouraged one way or rather than another throughout our history? But I, I think uh, it happens. It's happened many times, and you, you really can't think about human history without thinking about our relationship with entities from beyond. Hmm. Yeah, and even if uh, you kind of take that uh, external concept, just take it out, put it on the side for a second, and and take a step back into the sort of deeper structure of reality, which we've talked qu about quite a bit. If, if you take the position that consciousness is an underlying level of experience, then there is an ability of intelligence to kind of t connect into that level to, to, to use the word you, you know, to use the use their channel to kind of channel into that fundamental structure and then pull out from that structure different insights. And I think to uh, cultures that have done that in a very kind of uh, ritualistic way through things like shamanic tradition, you know, there might be a tribe and a shaman or a shamanic family that has 
a set of rituals that are intended to uh, draw from this well of, of, for lack of a better term, weird experience or weird esoteric kind of knowledge that isn't of the norm, that is outside the conventional knowledge of that group. And the ability to do that, as you said, to go in, which many of those shamanic traditions are adept at doing, to go in and pull out and then, and then display to those that are outside and say, wrestle with this. You know, I, I pulled this out and, you, and I'm asking you to wrestle with this weirdness. And in that wrestling, it, it creates uh, change moments for those individuals and their cultures. Yeah. And I think too, um, in light of what we were talking about a few minutes ago, where sometimes skill sets are brought about through need, right? So I think that's a big part of it. When we grouped into city centers and, and civilization began to form, because we knew where our food was coming the next day, we didn't need to have the shaman channel the spirits to tell us where where the game or the you know the the mushroom patch was right i mean because we didn't have to over time we began to trust our sort of left brain planning kind of uh mentality which again brought about many many positive traits uh many many positive outcomes but there was a trade-off right there's when you don't have that visceral need that you must find some way to discern some truth about what you can gather tomorrow to stay alive. There's no way you can replicate that um, through a video game or, you know, something modern where it's like, we know there's really no skin in the game. When the skin's really in the game, that's when you uh, are able to tap into these powers and then actually grow them. And that's, again, what what Joe McMonagle was saying to me is that, you know, he grew up in the mean streets of Miami, as I've said before, where he needed to know what was around the corner because it could be life-threatening. And from a very young age, you know, kind of being out on the streets and and needing to protect he and his sisters, that primitive man, uh, you know, that, that, that really ancient human capacity that is dormant in all of us, right? That's what the, the evidence suggests that we all are psychic to some degree, but it's just dormant. Um, but when it's, that muscle is used at a really young age, then it can really develop and become something quite profound. And I think we underestimate how much um, these uh, these various people groups were actually not just making vague guesses and then calling it the spirits. They actually were tapping in to intelligences. And I would say to your point too, around the consciousness piece, you know, part of, again, the bias of the, of the modern world is that, uh, Consciousness is a later arising, an emergent property within space-time, right? That matter is is fundamental. Then way down the, uh, you know, down the trail, you eventually get something called consciousness, which to a lot of you know physicalists is kind of more of an illusory kind of state, but it's not really real ultimately. That's kind of where they land. Whereas I would say the reality is, um, I know both you and I are. Uh, pretty convinced that the reality is more of around idealism, this sense that space-time is within consciousness. So if that's the case, then suddenly you understand how these shamanic cultures could and still can actually go within to find information of real value 
because the space-time construct is actually just one of many um, later manifestations that are that are emergent from this deep consciousness pool. And when there's these different uh, mindscapes, dreamscapes that are overlapping, uh, when you have this capacity to tap into it, you really can gather information. I really think that was happening. I think maybe even some people listening to this program might be curious about that and saying, are you saying that it actually works? And I'm saying, yes, this actually works. I really think it does. And and in light of some stuff I've been you know, tweeting and talking about the last couple of days, I think even in our modern world, people are channeling much more than they ever realize. You know, whether it's a, a piece of artwork that someone just gets in that flow state and it just feels like that song wrote itself or that poem wrote itself or that that painting painted itself. I saw it in my mind's eye. I think that's more of that going on. We just we just re uh, we find a different way of describing it that fits with our model of reality. Um, but actually, when you really begin to think about things more the way we're talking about, where this is a mindscape, uh, a shared dream space, then you start realizing actually it makes more sense to think that actually you're channeling these things from somewhere else. And uh, that's true from everything from great artistic uh, works to uh, technological innovation as well. Yeah, I'm glad you, you brought up that technology piece because the as I'm thinking about the ways in which we have attempted to get that knowledge and, and thinking about the shamanic tradition and how those traditions often were later co-opted by more organized religious traditions. And underlying that co-opt uh, co-option is a, is a kind of technological drive to, to take that messier form of, of information gathering in, in the shamanic way and to control it through religious ritual and practice and, you know, kind of box it in that if we can do it and, and, and basically make it a, a kind of technology, a tool in which we wield over people to get them to do things we want them to do, you know, therein comes the religious structures and institutions and all their trappings uh, to, to, to try to, you know, I guess like exert a level of power and influence over an organized group of people. But what I find interesting about that, and, and you certainly are aware of this too, with your religious studies background, is that no matter how many times we have done this in human history, where we have tried to, uh, you know, kind of make these things, we have tried to be the masters of these experiences rather than let the experiences come to us. Inevitably, within all of those traditions that do that, there emerges uh, this uh, sort of uh, prophetic power that speaks out against that religious structure. Uh, so it's inescapable. Like as much as we think we've kind of got it locked down and we, you know, we have this tradition nice and tidy and, everything's okay, well, lo and behold, there comes this sort of epiphany or this uh, moment of experience within the tradition that we must grapple with. And, and that, that small little change, that little perturbation in the larger uh, sort of structure ends up inevitably changing it from the inside out. Uh, I don't know how you think about that, but to me, it, it's, a, it's, it's pretty clear if you look at our religious past, like that's happened over and over again. 
Yeah, several several things come to mind with that. Um, you know, to first your point around the co-opting of previous traditions, you know, often, you know, as we've talked about before, the reason that happens is because, say, a, a colonizing force will go into a certain area that already had certain spiritual practices, and this may have been going on for generations and generations, and you can't just can't tell them to stop, right? They won't. So instead, what you do is you you reframe it, right? You say, okay, so yes, demons are real, but really there's only two types, the goods and the bads. And one's demon, one's angel. And this is how this makes sense within our religious tradition. And so what people often don't remember <clears throat> or don't realize, you know, I remember saying this to you recently that I, I still see people saying, you know, what will replace religion one day? And my response is religion has been replaced a thousand times already. It's being replaced all the time by the next iteration of it, right? So um, for instance, even today in different parts of the world, there's some very, very different forms of Christianity. You know, even within Buddhism, there's numerous schools, um, you know, and, and just like in Christianity, some Buddhist schools develop more dogma and more of a, uh, you know, did he really, you know, touch the ground kind of view of the Buddha versus others that seem much more as like a human being who is saying, don't look to me, ask these questions yourself, you know? Uh, so, but what's interesting is you get this syncretization that happens, right? Where you get this sort of amalgamation of two different cultures and sometimes enough time goes by. So for instance, you get Christians in the modern world in America who will say, listen, don't take Christ out of Christmas, right? I'm sick of all this commercialization. And give me my give me my darn Christmas tree, right? Not realizing that a Christmas tree was originally a pagan symbol, right? Um, mm -hmm. That was co opted by the church uh, again in a way to sort of like try to rein in the local population when a colonizing Christian force came in. Uh, but but lastly, I would say I think this even happens with with the UFO phenomenon because you talked about you know trying to to simplify and to um, catalog this and categorize it in such a way that becomes safe, you know, and tame. I think, you know, just today we both were, were reading uh, or listening to um, an audio uh, segment that a friend of ours recorded about all the different segments within ufology who are convinced of their own particular view of what's going on, right? And it's usually a very narrow view, everything from, you know, there's no such thing as a bad alien, right? They're all good. They're all like, you know, angelic basically. And if you encountered something different, then it was probably like a psyop from the government, uh, you know, or, or that you brought it on yourself. And we, we've, we've seen that again in our, both of our religious history come up in, in even in biblical texts around there was times where there was just this assumption, if bad things happened to you, it must have been because of the fruit of your actions, right? You must have brought this on yourself somehow. We're seeing that very same thing happen today with the UFO phenomenon, where people have the gall to say, well, if you had a negative experience with a negative alien, you're, you're just experiencing the reflection of your own shadow. So really, if you just do some shadow work, you, that won't happen anymore, right? Which is the very same thing that, that Job and people like that in, in ancient biblical history ran into as well. So it's, you know, hum, humans don't change as much as we think we do. And um, I think, you know, part of my realization, the more I've kind of channeled some, some information about what is going on, it's just how insanely complex it is. And no simple model is, is going to capture it. And just like you just sort of uh, implied, you know, if you try to 
um, force this structure over it, you know, close that suitcase on it, the shirt's going to lean, you know, out of the suitcase. You're just not going to be able to shut it down. Eventually that, that energetic impulse will arise in some other way. Um, that's just kind of the way it works. And it's again, part of our long trajectory of, as a, as a species trying to understand something. And as soon as we understand it, we try to lock it down. And yet, um, that impulse will always rise again. And that's kind of this cycle that we've been going through. Mm -hmm. I think of it as our, as our relationship with, uh, intelligence with a capital I, uh, consciousness with a capital C is that, uh, continues to grow. Our models will never be quite right. And no matter how much we want to be the architects of a perfect system, and our theologians are excellent technicians and, and magicians who can, you know, kind of transmute the, uh, the content of the religion of the past and, and, and move it into the present, uh, recontextualizing those things for a present worldview and present model of understanding. You can never plan for the individual experience. And the individual experience, uh, this is so, to me, uh, timely, given w what happened today. You know, the individual experience that, that says, well, where does this fit? You know, wrestle with this. How do you work this into your neat little model? You know, and that, to me, is the signpost that tells us we have to go further. We have to rework things and, and go deeper than we've gone before because it's still not quite right. And we must incorporate these, these experiences into our sort of new worldview. And then even beyond that, there will be new models that, that emerge once we think we've got that down, uh, Pat, as well. But all of these things are what you would expect to see if you are relating with an intelligence that is not the uh, sort of common intelligence of a population that that is that is present in relationship with you you know it's it's mere existence as it relates to you on some level as a society or as an individual prompts emergence of new ways of insight and 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 experience yeah and i would say you know even when you think about it from kind of a, a scientific perspective Girdle's theorem tells us that you can never have a complete model, right? So um, that's kind of in, uh, there's a mathematical proof around that. So it's really, in some ways, not, you know, you can't deny it, that um, the nature of reality seems to be a dynamic system like that, that, it, that it, it, by its very nature, is alive and therefore not tamed, not static, never fully knowable, that uh, as I've postulated on point of convergence before, our very act of trying to understand reality expands it, right? And so it's like the cat chasing its tail, um, but in a really dynamic uh, and incredible and beautiful way that we are part of the very thing, this underlying construct of consciousness that we're trying to understand. And so we are changing it by studying it. And, and that, you know, creates this kind of ongoing cyclical dynamic, which is really interesting. Um, but, you know, and just in terms of science, you know, I think a couple things there. One is it's sad that science has become 
as as and it's not just a pick on science because the same thing happened with Christianity, right? And every other religious tradition. It's really a human nature thing. It's not a religious thing or a scientific thing. It's just this desire to like lock it down and say this is the system, this is the model, and the model basically is a map that perfectly represents the territory. When we know that the map never represents the territory. It's always an approximation. It's always going to lose things in translation, that it will never be as dynamic and fully dimensional as the territory itself. Um, but the other piece that I think about with what we're lacking in the UFO phenomenon discussion is that because there has been so little scientific rigor applied, um, people can just adopt whatever belief system they prefer and they're never confronted with the data that doesn't fit that, or that they can just find ways to sort of hand wave and say, well, you did this wrong, or, you know, this, this is the outlier, you know, explanation here. And they don't really grapple with the data. Whereas I think about like Donald Hoffman's work around seeing evolution as an interface rather than base reality. He's basing that on mathematical theorems, right? He's saying, this is what the math is telling us. And he's done a great job in his humble way of saying that the reason why we fallible human beings need like math, the precision of a mathematical model is because we so do quickly move towards dogma, right? All of us. And the reason why space-time, for instance, is running up against a brick wall is because the math is telling us that. So as much as it's been this amazing explanatory mechanism that's you know given us all the wonders of the modern world and taken us into space and all these other things, given us refrigerators and personal computers, but um, you know there's there's always there's always another side to that. So um, this is something just to keep in mind uh, as we move forward. At uh, at some point, I think you know I'm thinking about how we the urge to have that control, you know, a lot of the pushback that we see on the data that, that is, that doesn't fit is this urge to be comfortable, uh, to, to kind of beat back the, the outliers, uh, and fortify the walls of what I want to be true. Um, uh, instead of opening yourself up to that, uh, information that doesn't quite fit and, and it might change what you know, it might change how you are. Um, and, and so I think about that and I think about our, the way that we organize ourselves uh, sort of structurally as, as societies, you know, too. So nation states do that as well, right? They, they, they have very clear uh, boundaries and structures and uh, borders and, uh, you know, all meant to keep, you know, non-folks who are in that nation away. You know, you're not a citizen of this country. You know, we do things this way. This is what makes us comfortable. It's what what has worked for us. Uh, all of everyone else, we'd like you just to stay outside. If you do come, you have to come on our terms. Uh, we're going to be watching you, and we're going to ask you to politely leave at some point. You know, so it's very organized and neat and tidy. Uh, it, it's it's not doesn't surprise me that those structures mirror uh, the way in which we do, uh, the way in which we model the world and, and how we believe. Um, how do you see the role of the nation state and kind of in how it functions both uh, in the way I just talked about, but in the way that it may or may not wrestle with a threat to its power 
that might come from outside that is not just a mere uh, sort of uh, other nation, but a threat that is non-human? You know, how, how do how would how do states and state power deal with something that, quite frankly, they may have no ability to control? Well, I think back to uh, a famous speech that Ronald Reagan gave where he said, you know, the, the one thing that might unite the world and douse the Cold War, uh, it, it would be um, a threat from an extraterrestrial, you know, intelligence. Um, now, interestingly, I think there's evidence I've seen that that was not just um, a hypothetical, that he was actually aware of um, an alien intelligence a group that was here that were actually abducting people. Um, and, you know, the, as the story goes, you know, he actually had conversations with his Russian counterpart uh, to say, you know, if this flares up, will you join hands with us in, in trying to fight this off? Um, which is interesting when you think about it right away, because it's like, it's admitting it's almost like, you know, kids on the playground saying, you know, if a bigger bully comes along, will you, rather than fighting me, actually <clears throat> help fight them off? And I think I've given you, uh, or maybe talked about this on this on this podcast, I can't remember, but I love this example of this one time this teacher was noticing different factions in his class, right? Different cliques that were forming. And so what he did was he just started being really... Um, bizarre and the kind of homework he gave. And he would suddenly give a pop quiz without giving any kind of warning and just would action, you know, very arbitrary ways. And what it did was it united all the kids in the classroom around the, you know, the unjust teacher, right? So they all became just one group trying to rally against this unjust teacher who had these arbitrary rules and it was completely capricious. And at the end of the the semester, he kind of explained what he did and why he did it. You know, I think it's a great example of how how that happens. Um, I think part of the the reason why the, the you know disclosure hasn't happened, and I've talked about this before many times, is because you know when a populace is made aware that there are intelligences that are more capable than us technologically. And seem to actually understand space-time and even the way that consciousness works in ways that we can't even begin to understand and comprehend and even sometimes form potential models around. Um, that to admit this to a populace undermines the very fabric of a nation state because the whole idea of having borders is that you can actually defend them, right? That you can say to people, you can rest, you know, rest quietly in your room at night because, you know, we've got you know, F-18s and tanks and um, police forces and military. But when none of that works, when all of that becomes like sticks and stones versus something that's like hyper-intelligent and hyper-capable, you know, none of that matters. So that's been part of the issue is that this phenomenon uh, does not care about your borders, does not care about, you know, your nationality uh, or your societal structure. And so it, it inherently uh, destabilizes the, the notion of nation states. And lastly, I would just say, you know, again, it's surprising to me how often we are so myopic, you know, like there was a time in history where the nation state was a, was a progressive move. It made sense to do that, you know, and, um, but now we're in a situation where we have technology and markets that are all around the world, 
where what one country does, um, you know, with re- natural resources and then what it does in terms of how it pollutes the air, you know, inevitably gets carried by trade winds that affect other countries. And uh, it gets to the point where it just becomes clear that um, the dynamics of the system have be- have changed, right? That that now the notion of having these borders um, doesn't really make sense when there's all these dynamic systems that ignore those borders, right? And so it's kind of silly to pretend that borders can change that. So we have to rethink how we handle borders, right? And it makes a lot more sense to, for, for numerous reasons, that we begin to think as a global community. And which of course is challenging because there's all sorts of inequalities we'd have to address first. Um, and I'll be the first to admit that you can't just impose a new model on a consciousness that's not ready for it. You know, you need to, uh, when we went into Afghanistan, you know, and, and thinking that we're liberating them, right? But if, if the mindset collectively is not ready for a market-based capitalist system, you can't just change it overnight. So I'm not saying that we can do this overnight, but I'm saying we have to work towards this because the dynamics of the system suggest this is the only thing that's viable in the long term. Not to mention, again, to bring it back to the, the question of the UFO phenomenon, the one aspect that makes us so glaringly primitive to so many of these other intelligences is that we still have nation states rather than identifying as, as a global community. Uh, so I think that's just something that, that's come through loud and clear over and over again uh, in the narratives around experiencers. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that, I mean, the house is getting crowded. Um, we're really running out of room. And I think this recognition that uh, we all are, in fact, roommates is um, something that at least seems to be becoming clearer and clearer. Uh, there's still a great deal of denial about that. Uh, but as you pointed out, our systems are now uh, incredibly intertwined. Um, obviously, we all share the same thermostat as well. Uh and so uh, the degree to which we want to continue insisting that we don't have to get along or we don't have to start looking at things differently in ways that that, that might be transformative uh, and, uh, and move away from how we've always done things in the past. I mean, I think that that's just um, rom- a little bit romantic and, and short-sighted. Uh, I do think we've got to find constructive ways to experiment uh, and, and grow the system uh, or transform that system to where it can be more accommodating. I know you've talked about this quite a bit on uh, point of convergence, these sort of stages of consciousness development uh, and awareness. And, you know, for some that can be quite, I think, frightening that uh, there's certainly a lot of, uh, in American tradition, there's a lot of literature that really uh, demonizes this sort of um, larger, governmental structure, uh, where we start to see these kinds of borders dissolve and, and things become a lot more fluid. But I've heard you argue that really that's what it would look like as sort of the consciousness level, uh, changes and grows over time. And, and a lot of that's just the recognition of what we just talked about, that, uh, we really aren't, uh, we don't have the luxury of, you know, kind of staking out our, our fences in the same way we've have in the past. And we, we, we must, in fact, uh, change, or we will, we will die. We will fight each other to the death. Um, but h- how do you look at that now? Uh, in, in particular, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what do you see in your own experience and in the literature uh, 
of of how the uh, these other intelligences are kind of pushing us or interacting with us to to impact that no- notion of the nation state. Well, I would say one thing uh, I think I've brought it up on this podcast before, if not here, then on POC, um, where there there's you know I think there's some some surprising evidence from the 20th century that is outside the mainstream narrative, the conventional narrative, and yet it did happen. And one of them being around this uh, alien group that actually did approach an American administration uh, with overtures around, we're willing to help you with you know technology that could create free energy and whatnot, uh, solve a lot of your problems. Um, but you know, in exchange, we would need you to disarm and uh, inevitably begin to think more like a global community. And, and as the narrative goes, you know, this, this overture was declined. Um, and, uh, because there was, you know, fear that, well, what if our opponents across the pond choose not to disarm, then suddenly we're at a great disadvantage. So you kind of have that, that locking mechanism, right? Where, where you have nation states is that you don't have the luxury right now of acting as one unit, right? That works in the best interest because you're always having to be aware of what that what advantage that might give your your opponent. Um, and again, it is it is complex. You can't just take peace and love and say, "Hey, man, let's just like do away with all of these things overnight." It just doesn't work that way. There are some warlords in certain parts of the world that would just dominate people and terrorize people when that happened. When the when the Soviet Union fell. That just gave a lot of criminal enterprises an opportunity to step in where the state used to dominate. And now these these criminal enterprises did, uh, different mafias and whatnot. So you, you can't just impose a system. But like you said, we need to find ways to think more creatively. We need to find ways, I think, to um, actually mobilize new models, right? Because it's one thing to talk about these things, but people become so rigid in their thinking, especially when it's never been done, they assume it can't be done. And, you know, you look at someone like an Elon Musk, again, I understand people, some people are for him, some people are against, it's a mixed bag, I'd say. But what someone like he uh, or Steve Jobs, those kind of people do is that they just say, damn it, I think I can do it differently and I'm going to do it, you know? Um, and we, we need models like that for how we can live collectively. Um, because... My concern is that the situation is more dire than people realize. And we are, again, pretty myopic and nearsighted in our view. And so as long as, you know, uh, the price of gas doesn't get too high and, you know, we can still pay our bills and buy groceries. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle those things. Those things matter, right? Like it's, it's, it's hard to live in this world in some ways. Um, but if we think only at that level, while this growing collapse forms around us because the system is just not sustainable. Eventually that all comes crashing down in one go. And um, if you don't see the writing on the wall, it's just going to surprise you one day, whether it's us or our grandchildren doesn't really matter. It's still, you know, going to implode at some point. And so I think that's one overarching aspect of this UFO phenomenon narrative in terms of experiencer accounts how many times there's been this kind of apocalyptic uh, vision of what's going to happen 
whether you take that literally, like, you know, when people see the earth on fire or whatever, matters less than the sense that there is some sort of emergency uh, situation that they're trying to draw our attention to. Some of them, I think, are beings that are partly here, uh, like ultra terrestrials who are impacted by directly by things we do when we detonate atomic bombs over the Atlantic. Uh, and there are actually alien groups living in bases you know, in the oceans that directly impacts them. But even how there's these interpenetrating realities, which again, from that consciousness model, um, you know, shamans can get in touch with. In the same way, atomic energy can perhaps, according to the narratives anyway, impact these intersecting realities in ways we don't understand yet. And of course we wouldn't understand it because we won't even acknowledge they exist, right? We assume there's this one dimensional flatland reality and yet we're unleashing these immense powers into the, into the cosmos without really having a clear understanding that we know what reality even is. And so this is, uh, I think, in the midst of the great mystery we're all wrapped up in and trying to understand this, I think we need to, to remember how common that concern is raised by these others across the board. Um, and I think... Uh, when you look at the situation around us, it certainly seems to be based on reality, not just myth. Mm-hmm. I get the sense that people feel this, you know, very deeply that, uh, at least the people that I talk to, I mean, we all, I think kind of have this, uh, recognition that it's not working and that something has to change. And, you know, I, I think about that, but I also am aware that we, we have a hyper fixation on, on bad news. Um, it's being fed to us really every day, kind of part of the fabric of, of, of the air we breathe. And so, uh, you know, I, I guess I just wonder to what degree are these other intelligences, are they taking an active role to help us and help us transform uh, our ways of being and, and, and enter into new ways of being? Um, what are the energies at play there? And, and we've talked about, uh, in fact, we talked about earlier tonight, we came on the air, you know, kind of the, the greater story at play, the, the greater kind of tapestry of, of life, um, and all of the energetic movements therein. And we can be pretty myopically focused on this experience right here and now, but there are, uh, just layer upon layer of interactions that are happening that, we barely can perceive or, or maybe not perceive at all. And so, you know, how, how do we best, I, I think where I'm going here is how do we best contextualize uh, all of that uh, other activity uh, in light of our lived experience kind of in, in this moment where we are on earth and, and with one another, how, how do we make sense of all of that? No small question there. <laughs> yeah. Good, good luck with that one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, one of the things I was saying to you before we went on the air was uh, me kind of having a vision of the complexity of how many uh, different elements there are to what we call the phenomenon and, and how there are so many interpenetrating realities that I, I was envisioning and seeing and experiencing when I had this this download that, you know, almost everything we do... Um, and that we're motivated by that, uh, you know, modern science might reduce to, well, that's because, you know, 
you get a serotonin release or dopamine and that's why that's happening or this and that. I would say those are correlates in the phys- in, in a physicalist model, right? Those are the correlates that show up on the physical level. But just like, you know, Donald Hoffman would say, and I love it when he says this because it sounds so startling to people, you know, your brain doesn't really exist, you know? And, and what he means is when you look at a brain, that's just the correlate, a one-dimensional correlate of something that's happening in consciousness. And so it's a it's a second person perspective of your of you know your conscious experience. And I know that's difficult for people to understand because it sounds outlandish, but the more you begin to see that everything is consciousness, including space, time, and everything in it being actually just a manifestation of that. Um, anyway, getting back to the picture of like all these interpenetrating realities, um, even when we experience fear or we experience love or we experience union, these are energies that are coming from beyond us as well. And we have to find ways to respond to those energetic impulses in better ways. And I totally agree with you that part of the problem is that our media just bombards us constantly, right? Like, you know, there's that famous expression, if it bleeds, it leads, right? For newspapers. It's that to the nth degree now, because there's not even like a few main newspapers and a few main TV channels that can have the luxury of saying, you know, let's actually put quality first. They they can't because it's a market-driven system. So, you know, whatever is the most shocking that's going to produce the most post-traumatic stress syndrome in people, the better, ironically, right? Uh, when 9-11 happened, I remember myself, you know, you just, you watch image after image after image over and over again of these jets smashing into these buildings, knowing that people are dying in the process, right? And yet we can't look away, right? It's a, it's a, it's a bizarre energetic thing that we go through. Um, so I think we're kind of like the frog that, you know, you put them in the pot and you turn up the water temperature slowly and it never jumps out, right? Because it loses its ability to, it becomes desensitized in a way, right? Uh, and that's what it's been like with us. That on the one hand, we're told that there are some real emergencies in the world. And yet at the same time, the news tells us that the most insane emergencies are happening every day. And yet we wake up the next day and we're still here. So that begins to fool us into thinking, oh, maybe there actually are no real emergencies. It's all just entertainment and shock value. While actually these stresses build up in the system and eventually the system just collapses. I think that's that's the challenge the challenge that we're faced. Yeah, and you've we've talked about I think our uh, our, our 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 view our our perceptual awareness is uh, in many ways rightly focused on you know here now where we are and and our immediate concerns, but if you do take this more macro view that we are but a small part of a very large uh, expression that is reality, uh, you know, the consciousness uh, that it, it, it changes the way in which we see ourselves and, our, and the importance of our, our experience. So I guess I want to play with this a little bit because, you know, I, th- I think that it's important that we, we, we treat this concept very seriously and we could be pretty flippant about it. And we could say, well, what happens to you and I is uh, no more important than what happens to uh, a cell that just happens to be 
you know, dying in your body and you don't even realize that it was there to begin with. Um, we, we could take that pretty uh, callous view of the cell. But if we were to take a more integral view of the entire system, well, we, we value all the cells that we have, you know, we, uh, you know, that they, they all comprise the organism and the organism is, is, is who we are, you know, so we have this ability in our own experience of life to shift our level of awareness to this macro awareness of self down to this micro awareness of those things, which, which constitute ourselves. And in that very same way, reality is that as well. So reality has this ability uh, to have a, a macro awareness of self, that cosmic self, capital S, uh, and, and also can perceive down, all the way down uh, to the very lowest levels and, and realize the importance of those lowest levels as well. Is that how you think of this? I mean, for me, that, that's how I look at it because it feels very holistic. Uh, it feels very redemptive where nothing is really discarded or, uh, or denigrated in any way. It doesn't mean everything's harmonious. Obviously there's a lot of activity happening in a body at any given moment. Things are being metabolized and, you know, energies are transmuted from one form to another. Uh, so it's not like it's all just everybody holding hands and it's perfect, but it, it, it makes sense to me that, that if, if reality is, it can be compared to that, that that's, uh, one, one positive way of looking at how all of these interactions may be taking place. Yeah. I think that is the way I think about it. Um, you know, there's this expression, a, a term whole on, which, uh, basically describes how every discrete part of reality is both an individual and part of a larger, a larger whole. Right. So, um, like you said, cells are discrete individual things, but they also are part of make up organs, which make up a body, right? Um, it's really interesting when you look at, in the macro view, when you look at a the neuronal network of a brain and you look at the macro view of the universe, they look very, very similar. It's almost like you could say that the universe in its totality looks like the, the neuronal network of God, right? Of, of the central cosmic intelligence. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense from a consciousness first kind of model. Um, and it's interesting, I, I had someone bring this up, and it's a great point that, you know, we now have evidence that, you know, our gut is kind of like another kind of brain, another kind of decision center, right? And what that basically is saying is that there are some, uh, you know, single-celled organisms, perhaps, um, or, you know, microbial life, uh, bacteria and whatnot living in your gut that is actually making you make decisions one over another and you're not conscious of it because you you kind of harmonize it within this larger structure and furthermore there's there's lots of evidence now uh that you know the two hemispheres of the brain are very very different you know you when you you know basically shut down the functioning of one to see highlight what they both do and it's not just about different functions they carry but they basically can have completely different personalities. You know, you literally can have one brain, one half of the brain. I say one brain because they're almost basically like two, two brains that harmonize um, into a coherent sense of self. But, you know, you can actually have situations where when they're able to shut down the functioning of one part of the brain and talk to the other, one will be atheistic. The other one will be a committed, you know, religious believer, literally in the same 
within the same skull of a human being. Um, so we already see so much evidence of this, right? Over and over again and in reality, this whole on kind of structure where everything is both a discrete organism and part of a larger. And I think that scales all the way up and all the way down. And like you pointed out, they both have value looking at it that way. I think that when we go awry is when we, we focus too much on, on either side of that, right? We don't, we don't see the, the interconnected nature of everything, uh, which ultimately scales up. Like Donald Hoffman would say, you take all these discrete conscious agents, but they ultimately, even in the math, can also be described as one cosmic agent, ultimately, like basically the mind of God, right? Or Bernardo Castrop would say, we are all disassociated selves within the capital S self that you referred to. Uh, and this is partly how the capital L self, uh, S self has a novel experience is by splitting off and basically letting novel experience come in and then feed that back into the entire dynamic process, which makes consciousness move forward. So it's difficult because we get fooled by the illusion. And the same way we can look at an optical illusion and be fooled by it, <clears throat> we can look at a, a, you know, a piece of flat piece of paper and see just by the way that lines are drawn that we, our brain perceives a cube, right? A three-dimensional object when we know, we know better, we know it's not there. And yet you can't stop your brain from seeing it that way. That's happening over and over again. And whether it's, you know, gut bacteria, making us choose, you know, one food over another uh, or whatever, I think that, or we look at, like I mentioned on POC, when you have a cancer cell that goes wrong, it goes rogue and actually can destroy the organism that it's a part of and destroy itself in the process. So getting back to sort of pulling this around to our nation state argument, same thing there, right? That if you, if you focus too much on just the needs of your nation state, forgetting that it's part of some larger organism. And that's really what it is. It's not a flat one-dimensional structure. It's an organism, right? And again, that's part of the problem we have with the earth is that we tend to look at it like this frontier to be dominated rather than this living organism of which we are a part. Again, in that whole on network, we are individual cells within the, the, the earth. And, uh, we sometimes don't for, don't realize that we're becoming like cancer cells and how we're, you know, interacting with the very, you know, mother of, of all of us, the, the one home that we have. So I think this ability to toggle between or be simultaneously aware of both those modalities all the way up and all the way down is, is the, one of the biggest challenges we have to overcome in order to think more holistically and, and live in more harmony uh, all the way up and all the way down. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What about UFOs? I mean, <laughs> so we've t- we spent a lot of time not talking about them on this episode, but you and I both know that even though we haven't talked about them explicitly, we are in fact talking about them implicitly. And uh, maybe we spend a little bit of time as we kind of veer toward the end of this show, trying to paint that, that broader picture to integrate these uh, subjects uh, into a, a cohesive you know, na- narrative um, because they are very much intertwined. Um, you know, we, we've, we, we're talking about it subtly, but if we were to be more explicit, the uh, emergence of 
the UFO phenomena of uh, abduction experience of uh, non-human entities, uh, near-death experience, you know, the, the gamut of things that we uh, are quite interested in and spend a lot of time talking about on various shows, you know, how does that wide variety of, of phenomena integrate with this no notion, this, uh, this consciousness no notion and you know, what's the best way to look at that? You know, I feel like everything that I'm reading in social media is, is just always focused to the nth degree on the smallest detail, the smallest component of, of this story. Um, there are very few folks who are thinking, you know, about it in a holistic way. So what, if we were to take kind of things that we've talked about on this episode, you know, things like, uh, the growth of human civilization and and uh, mediating non-human intelligent uh, experience into human experience, uh, the emergence of nation states and, and kind of the roles that they serve and where they may be going. You know, what what is it that this this UFO thing and all that it entails? Like, what what does it mean to you in, in that context? Well, I think partly what we have is. Um you know, a tapestry of many, many different agents. Um, I, uh, I, I'm frequently flabbergasted, maybe is the term I would use, by how often people have the tendency to want to reduce complexity and how we are biased by a fairly limited experience. You know, before we went on the air tonight, I was talking to you about how even the, the modern scientific way we look at the world is a fairly recent, uh, you know, twinkling of the eye in comparison to the, the age of our species. And yet we take it so seriously and so literally and, and so, uh, absolutely. Um, and so I think what happens is when we become wedded to the idea that that pretty well describes reality, when we experience anomalous phenomena, we tend to go, Oh, We've got an outlier. How are we going to fit this into the model? Uh, because we know the model is got is pretty rock solid. I mean, we we've lived like this for like three hundred years. I mean, come on, it's rock solid, right? And, and we've you know we've transformed our surroundings because we've known how to um, we know how nature behaves, right? So I've I've mentioned this before too that um, science doesn't tell us ultimately what nature is or what reality is. It just tells us how it behaves. So we can, you know, through scientific uh, investigation um, and developing hypotheses, we can predict how nature is going to behave. And that's all we really need to know in order to create refrigerators and, and spacecraft, right? Um, we don't need to know what it ultimately is. But I think that while that bias to believing that because we've been so successful technologically at transforming our civilization, our mo model must be mostly complete. When we have outlier data like the UFO phenomenon and paranormality and deceased individuals uh, showing up, uh, you know, or ghosts or poltergeist activity, um, we, we tend to think, well, maybe it's just all different manifestations of the same one thing we're missing. We're just missing that one thing. And again, I think that largely comes from that bias towards thinking our model is pretty comprehensive. Um, 
my sense, to be totally honest with, with the sort of realizations I've had, the things that I've glimpsed, the communication I've had with other intelligences is that it's more like our model maybe captures 10% and there's 90% we're missing. Like it's, um, it's kind of like, you know, when we so flippantly say, yeah, we understand space time even, we understand the universe. That said, you know, there's this stuff we call dark energy and dark matter that is the vast majority of all that is. And we don't really know what that is. We just slip it into the equation so we can end up with, you know, uh, an equal sum at the end and, and, and kind of fool ourselves into thinking we have more certainty there than we actually do. And we're basically admitting when we look at the model we've generated that we're just slipping in some, uh, some factors into the equation to make it round properly, but we don't know what those things actually represent, right? Um, and yet we fool ourselves the same way that we we mock, you know, primitive cultures and say, ah, they think that the gods, you know, caused that hurricane, the silly people. Well, we just do that and we call it dark energy and dark matter, right? Um, so I think that a humble and I think a much more accurate way to look at this phenomenon is it's saying that there's something seriously amiss about our model, that the fact that it, it it just cannot be inserted into our model and be made sense of it is telling us that our model is incomplete. Uh, not just incomplete, but I would say a fair bit off track. You know, it, it's, again, it, just like, um, you know, you had um, Newtonian physics that works within a certain parameter range, right? Um, and now we have quantum theory. But even that, you know, suggestions are, again, that that space-time and quantum theory themselves are projections from some deeper structure of reality. And if consciousness is the ultimate bedrock of reality and that what we experience as our physical reality is more like a dreamscape, because I'll remind people again, when you're in a dream, everything feels real. When you knock on a desk, it feels solid, even though you know it's all supposedly phenomena being gen generated in a mentation process. I'm saying that's what reality is. So we have you know, a multitude of interpenetrating dreamscapes. And uh, just like you can actually have two human beings who can lucid dream and experience together. So they're both lying in separate beds. They could be on separate continents even and choose to meet up and develop this skill where they can have a lucid dream together in a dreamscape. I'm saying in the same way, these others can penetrate our dreamscape that we think is all there is. Uh, and and interact with us. And I'm saying this is happening over and over and over again in many, many layers with many, many different agents. And to add to that complexity, our consensus reality that is, is rigid because we all tend to believe a certain thing. But as more and more of the UFO phenomenon, you know, dials up, that begins to break down that consensus reality, which makes that membrane all the more porous, which allows for more and more penetration into our reality from these other realities, which just, you know, creates this kind of spiral where uh, eventually it, just like you said earlier, the stuff that squeezes out of the suitcase, right? Eventually you have no choice but to completely rethink your model of reality because the outlier data suddenly is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's for me why... Uh, you know, I, I continue to come back to this notion that uh, you know, a, a hyper focus on UFOs and you know, the nuts and bolts and the craft and the, you know, the crash retrieval program or whatever it is that is the flavor of the day 
that the uh, kind of hive mind of ufology seems to fixate on that while that's good and important in some level, I think it, it certainly helps us to, um, I would argue, the normalization of those uh, realities is a good thing for, uh, you know, kind of us generally, all that's, you know, fine and well. But really, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's important. What, what's more important are kind of the things which have always been important uh, in, in human life. And that is, you know, how we understand who we are, uh, the, the life of the mind, the uh, understanding of the self, the way in which we inter- interrelate with one another. It's all of those things that have been, uh, you know, good tonics to us in the human experience. But really what this is telling us is that we want to take that further. You know, we want to take those practices, many of which have been honed in uh, so many uh, wonderful spiritual traditions in human history and, and really take them further. You know, kind of it's, it's redeeming and reclaiming practices of the past, things that we talked about at the beginning of this show, you know, the shamanic tradition and religious tradition and, you know, certain aspects of those practices, reclaiming them and incorporating them into a new, more full awareness of what reality actually is, you know, and that is that it is grander and in and, and, and scope and depth than we can imagine. Uh, and we, we play a small part in that. But at the same time, we play uh, the, the part, you know, we, we are we are a a piece, but a, but a, but also the whole, you know, that re- recognition of that, uh, in my opinion, that truth really does create transformative behavior um, and an incredible in- insight into uh, not only, you know, this experience of now, but experiences of the past, the future, you know, and everything in between. Um, I feel like we're moving in that direction, or at least a lot of this conversation is. Um, and I'm hoping that those that listen to this show, you know, are kind of starting to catch that a little bit, that while we are both really interested in UFOs and, you know, we, we love the, the sort of revelatory nuggets as much as the next person. And we, we look at the, you know, the news and we hope for some, some big revelations, uh, from the government, just like everybody else does. But I, I don't want folks to uh, confuse our interest in that aspect of this topic for what, what I think both of us would agree is the deeper, more meaningful uh, pursuit, you know, and that is uh, the nature of consciousness and reality and our, our role within all of that. Yeah, I agree. And <clears throat> I think that gets, you know, to to a lot of the root of some of the revelations I've had is that this, the, you know, I use this expression manifestation engine when I was making a tweet on the weekend and, um, you know, this, these iterations of consciousness, you know, the experiment of consciousness, the experiment of, you know, the God intelligence, uh, dividing over and over again and experiencing, uh, novel experience. And to do that, it needs to, um, you know, create these little selves that, that can have, novel experience because they are, you know, now in a new situation, but then ultimately feed that back into the, the central intelligence so that the entire thing moves forward and iterates again. And it keeps going like that in a kind of a dynamic system, but it's, it's not a, 
it's not a mechanism, it's an organism, right? And um, it's alive. And that's as much true for the UFO phenomenon as it is for everything else we've been saying. And so for me, um, you know, the same way you can go to certain cultures around the world, especially if you've lived in one culture your entire life, you can have culture shock when you go to a different country. Uh, and these are still human beings, right? These are homo sapiens sapiens who uh, all come from the same tribe initially. But over time, some real differences, at least superficially, develop. And I'm saying that's true for these others as well. Um, and But ultimately, we're all on the same cycle, on the same circle of life, uh, whether it's alien beings or human beings. Hmm. I love that. I think that that's... Uh really powerful because uh, it does, in fact, um, give us something that unites all of us. You know, it, it helps change the, the framework from uh, these, these other beings being truly alien uh, to being just other expressions of this larger thing of which we are one expression as well, right? They are, you know, our cosmic sort of brothers and sisters, um, of that cosmic consciousness. And, um, to me that, I don't know, it makes it a lot more relatable. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not scary. Uh, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have danger. Um, I think that's important to point out, you know, we're not saying that, uh, it's all kind of kumbaya out there. Um, just like it's not all kumbaya in the human family or even your own, uh, you know, body, you know, there's stuff happening all the time, destruction and, and birth and whatnot. And, uh, I think that's just being realistic. Um, but there's meaning in all of it. Right. And, and I think that there is, um, the, the macro awareness of that conscious, of that larger consciousness, uh, it, you know, essentially means that none of it is forgotten, you know, that, that, that every single, uh, experience within the cosmic whole is valid and important in some form or fashion. You know, there may be, there may be a kind of, uh, telos or whatever, a, a trajectory that, that it is, uh, aiming toward. Um, at the same time, I tend to think that, uh, it, it both aims toward and aims back down at the same time. You know, there is this kind of, uh, you know, fluid, um, transition between the individual and, and the whole and that and that it's important that that dynamism exists and, and will always exist yeah and i think um you know sometimes the way that is described is through the simultaneous or co-rising processes of evolution and involution right and uh this kind of happens in an ongoing cycle um I think that the same way that we experience seasons of nature, uh, you know, and we, uh, and seasons of life and we, something really vibrant about that, that's really central to the human experience. I would say that's true of just experience across the cosmos, you know, and might even expand out as wide as, you know, a cosmos, uh, expanding out and then drawing together and doing that all over again kind of thing. Um, but another thing that comes to mind that relates to what we were talking about earlier with nation states and whatnot and um, hunter gatherers who gathered together and then formed, you know, city states and began to form civilizations is how 
what we do see over time, and I would say this is true across the board. So this is true of alien intelligences as well as human intelligences. And that is this, this notion of ever increasing circles of belonging, right? Circles of identity, right? So we, mm -hmm. um, there are many people now who identify more as citizens of planet earth and maybe even members of all sentient beings, you know, a member of that, that organization or that group, um, rather than, than nation states or even, you know, potentially an earthling, you know, there, there are people within the UFO phenomenon who have experiences of themselves as being more than just this, this iteration, right? I've had that experience. And so it changes how you think about what you are and what we are, what we means, right? Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it's interesting, I think of how some people will say along those lines of, you know, this, this move over time towards ever more expansive circles of inclusion, they'll say, well, I don't know we should use this term alien for these others because it sounds kind of, you know, negative, uh, the connotation. What's ironic is I, I will sometimes say to people that at its root, that word just really means other, right? Mm -hmm. But to some, some degree, other is a problematic word because whenever we define an other, it sets up an us versus them situation. Um, I remember a friend of mine had a had a band in high school that took a certain translation of a certain phrase from the Old Testament. And this is often not translated this way in English, but in this one particular edition, it was translated as the alien and the psycho. And so they actually had the band called Alien and the Psycho based on this one passage in the Old Testament, based on that particular translation of the Hebrew. And in that context, actually, alien there meant the neighboring tribe. Mm. And, and we're talking about like the people over the hill that are human beings. They were mm -hmm. considered alien, right? Because again, the, the definition of us was so narrow at that time. And if you look at the, the history of our civilization, it's been a march towards an ever-expanding circle of inclusion. Um, and I think part of the, the journey that we're on with this phenomenon, really those of us who are in love with the mystery, who are fascinated by it, is understanding that circle of inclusion is multidimensional in nature and may involve even iterations of ourselves that are much more complex and multifaceted than what we experience in this one finite body in this one particular iteration. Mm. Love it. Fantastic. Well, I think that, uh, probably gets us to the end of this episode. It's been, uh, to me, a meaningful conversation as we've explored these contours uh, of how the phenomena has impacted our, our human family uh, through, through history and in and, and the present and, and looking ahead to the future. Um, I know there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, just as futures often uh, seem to, to bring. Uh, there's a lot of anxiety about what may lie ahead but I think, to me at least, these insights give me a sense of peace with that, that no matter the turmoil that may come, uh, it does not change some fundamental truths and uh, the way in which we are really connected uh, to one another and to these others uh, in, in much the same way that we are connected uh, to our family. Um, uh, that's a, that, that gives me a great deal of comfort. Um, and I hope it does to those who are listening as well. So we'll conclude the show with uh, our benediction 
Uh, may the quality of our questions shaped by a desire for understanding enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on Liminal Frames.